Thank you, Sister Pat and Brother Nathan and Julie for leading us in worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy, we're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Well, over the past couple months, Pastor Tim has been faithfully walking us through Paul's first letter to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And you recall, Timothy was in the middle of a difficult church situation there in Ephesus. He was battling false teachers who were teaching false doctrine. Um, And he was instructing them on how to combat that and also with what was appropriate behavior in the church. He laid out for Timothy qualifications for pastors and deacons, which we've looked at together in chapter 3. And then last time that Pastor Tim preached in chapter 4, we ended with these verses in 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This morning, we're going to look together at instructions that Paul gave to Timothy, but also to us as the church, as to how we're to relate to one another. Before we look specifically at these verses, let's step back for a moment and just think, what's the big picture here? What is Paul after? What is he trying to communicate to young Timothy as a pastor there at the church in Ephesus? And also for us today as we think about how this passage of Scripture applies to our lives as well. I want you to consider this. Those who truly believe the Gospel are those who are being changed by the Gospel. Let me say that again. Those that truly believe the gospel are those who are being changed by the gospel. The true gospel of Jesus Christ has practical ways that it works itself out in the lives of believers. To truly believe is to make progress in godliness. And when we come to embrace all that God has done for us in Christ, it changes how we relate to one another. In chapter 5, Paul illustrates how the gospel is to influence how we relate to those older than us, younger than us, those of a different gender, and our pastors. Before we turn specifically, let's pause and pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and the exposition of His Word. Father God, any time we come together as Your people, it's a gift. It's a privilege. And Lord, we thank You that we can come together and worship You. Lord, sing songs and praises that are true about who You are. And Lord, to be able to open Your Word. Lord, I thank You that I don't stand up here this morning and speak out of my own wisdom and insight. But Lord, I lean heavy into Your Word. And so Lord, I pray this morning that You would give me wisdom and help help me to faithfully expose Your truth here. And then, Lord, I pray for each of us as hearers of Your Word that You would help us to know what it means for our lives, how we're to live and to relate to one another in the church and in the world. 
knowing that that will be for our good and for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you leave this morning with one major takeaway, here's what I hope it to be. We've got it up here on the slide. One major point uh, that I hope and pray as I've studied over this passage, uh, prayed and thought on it this week, I think this is what Paul is after. That those who are being changed by the power of the gospel relate to one another in ways that glorify God by putting His glorious gospel on display. So the way that we give Him praise and glory in our lives is when we put His gospel on display. A church that is captivated by the beauty and the power of the gospel relates to one another as family. They take care of those who are truly in need. And they treat their pastors with honor and respect. And we're going to walk through as we go through these verses and we'll see these three points. Let's look now at verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Pastor Charlie often makes reference to the church as a family. And that's just what we are. We're a family. We're an extended family of brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. And Paul makes this point explicit here to Timothy on how he's to relate to different ages and genders within the church. He's not suggesting that Timothy as a young pastor has to avoid admonishing those who are older. But what he's saying is, Timothy, when it's necessary to do so, do so with wisdom and discernment. Keep in mind the person's age who you're talking to. He's to avoid harsh rebuke of an older man, but instead respond to him like he would his own father. And similarly, he is to respond to older women in the church as he would his own mother. I know if I'm going to lovingly and graciously admonish my parents I'm going to do so with a keen sense and awareness of the fact that they're my parents and that I know the Bible says honor your father and mother respect them obey them so I'm going to do it very lovingly very graciously likewise the same should be true as I seek to admonish and encourage those who are older than me in the family of faith To brothers, Paul says, respond to them as brothers, with gentleness, with love, with affection, and to younger women as sisters, stressing here the importance of absolute purity in regards to younger women of the faith, so that there's no opportunity for slander. The applications here for us, they're relevant to all within the family of faith. Though, again, Paul's writing specifically here to Timothy as a young pastor, his counsel here provides a paradigm for us as to how we're to relate as a church family. Those older deserve honor and respect for their age and their wisdom and years. And those who are younger, we're to look out for, considering their best interests and their well-being. I think this is something that we would all probably agree that by and large has been lost in American culture. 
And sadly in the church culture, oftentimes as well, we don't always do the best job of extending respect to our elders. And at times those who are younger can be exploited instead of protected and nurtured. African and Asian cultures have a lot to teach us here. They oftentimes demonstrate great respect and honor to elders. And I think for us, as we seek to be salt and light to those around us, a city on a hill in a broken and lost world, we've got to demonstrate this countercultural principle. We must remember and not think it's just old, the commandment to honor your father and mother. Realizing that it's the Spirit of God that works within us that helps us to demonstrate true honor and true respect. Young people, I think there's a strong word for you here of of the importance of honoring your parents. And think of Paul in Ephesians. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's a certain sense, the Tripp brothers, some of you are probably familiar with Paul and Ted Tripp. In a lot of their writings and teachings, they use the example of a circle of blessing in relationship to this important truth that parents respect and honor their parents. When you do that, there's a circle of blessing, a circle of protection around your life. But when you choose to dishonor and disobey, you step outside of that circle into what is literally a danger zone. So here's the advice from Paul for us today. Though we're equal in value before a holy God, a person older than you in relationship to God, he doesn't look on them with more value than a younger person. But at the same time, though we're equal in value before God, in the church we're not to treat everyone exactly the same way. So we're equal in value, but we don't relate to everyone in exactly the same way. A final point to make here. I know I've spent a lot of time here on verses 1 and 2. I'll move quicker as we go. Just, Just hang with me. But a final point I think that is helpful to make here is the distinction Paul makes between these verbs of rebuke and encourage. He uses two different verbs. And I think here another important contemporary application, especially for those of us who are younger, that tone matters. Tone matters a whole lot. It's very important. At times, it may be more important than what we actually say. I have to confess, I learned this early on in my dating relationship with Holly. We would often, uh, we were in separate parts of the southeast, so we would on occasion meet in either Charlotte or Columbia. Heather and Tim lived there at the time, so we would meet there, spend some time over the weekend. And so one beautiful, I don't know if it was a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I just had this clever idea that a great afternoon date would be to participate in the sport of tennis together. Now, I enjoy tennis. I played a little bit of tennis in high school. By no means am I a tennis superstar. But I enjoy tennis, and I thought, you know, Holly's athletic. She enjoys getting outside. This will be great. This is going to go over well. Well, Holly grew up playing softball. And to those of you who play softball, you may know where I'm going here. In tennis, you have to quickly grasp the concept of top spin, or you're frequently running outside the gate, catching, picking up the ball. So Holly had it down. She was hitting them great. They were just out of the park. And so Chad was spending a lot of time going out to get them. And let's just say my tone probably wasn't a loving, caring brother in Christ. 
you know, I was probably put on more of the coach cook hat. And, and that did not go over so well. Tone, it, it's important. It's important in our marriages. It's important as we relate to one another in the body of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head into Christ. The flavor with which we say something is extremely important. Again, living like this, radically treating one another as family, for those who aren't biological but who've been bought by the same blood, again, it doesn't happen on our own. We need the transforming power of the Gospel at work in our lives so that we seek one another's good instead of merely using one another for our own means and purposes. Now, this may sound a bit overly harsh or drastic, but consider this reality. A heart that is turned inward, a heart that's devoted only to self, seeks to serve self ultimately. And those people in our lives, even the closest people, even our family members, if the transforming grace of God is not at work in us, those people will just merely become means for advancing our own kingdom. We ultimately serve two kingdoms. We're either bowing down and serving the kingdom of God or we're bowing down to the kingdom of self. The gospel is the good news that I was dead in my trespasses and sin. It's the good news that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But thanks be to God that we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Those who are being transformed by the power of the gospel relate to one another as family. And they also take care of those who are in need. Verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The group that Paul makes specific reference here is to widows. And yet, there are applications that can be applied to others within the church as well who experience need. Recall Jesus' words uh, in John's Gospel where he says that this is how they'll know you are mine, by your love for one another. Consider also just our Lord's heart for those in need, His compassion on those in need. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, um, or I can read these verses for us, but reading from Deuteronomy 10, the Word of God says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
In Psalm 68, 5, Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in His holy habitation. And then in our responsive reading this morning from Psalm 146, verse 9, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The ear and the heart of our God is inclined toward the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. Recall as well the early church in Acts 6. They appointed seven to serve. And the reason was so that the widows would not continue to be neglected. James in James 1.27 writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Recall here that in James' epistle the context is that of doing something. Not merely being hearers of the word but doers of the word. So back now to 1 Timothy. In honoring widows, Paul is suggesting that we do something to care for them when there's a true and legitimate need. It's clear from both the Old and New Testaments that we are to seek to care for the needy, the broken, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And yet, we're to do this systematically and prayerfully with as much order as possible so that the church doesn't become unduly burdened. And that others, family members in particular, have the opportunity to give and help when they're able in times of need. There's a qualifier in in these verses on the widows that the church is to assist. It's those who are truly in need. And that leads us then to the obvious question, what does it mean to truly be in need? And Paul tells us here, it's those who are left all alone with no family members who are able to extend care and financial support. A true widow is also one who set her hope on God. She's committed to prayer. She's committed to the church. The honor here has to do with financial provision. Paul goes on to say in verse 4 that if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first extend support as this gives glory to God. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. This is pleasing in the sight of God. And in verse 8 there, he gives a strong condemnation on those who fail to assist family members in need. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Many unbelievers in times of need, when family members present with a need, provide care and help. So for Paul, it's illogical for one to, in fact, be a believer in Jesus Christ and to not help and come to the aid of those family members in need. Then in verses 9 through 16, we get further specifics from Paul as to how this process of caring for and assisting widows is to work itself out in the life of the church. Verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, 
For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So we see here true widows were those not less than 60 years of age and those whose character could be described as godly. Earlier in this letter, we looked in chapter 3 at the qualifications Paul gives for pastors and deacons. Similarly, widows who were supported and assisted by the church, they also gave to the church. It was not handouts from the church apart from giving and service on, part, on the part of those who were enrolled. So in a similar fashion to pastors and deacons, the character of those widows who were serving the church mattered. It was important. It was important to consider her reputation, her former commitment to her husband, her children, and others in need. Paul's thinking here is that those less than 60 years of age may become enticed to marry or be, a, be led away from their commitment to Christ by sensual desires. We know that there was false teaching going on at the church in Ephesus and, and there may have been unbelievers who these younger widows were being led away by to, to follow them and, and to have desires to marry. So Paul's counsel to Timothy is don't enroll the younger widows. Instead, he says, go ahead and remarry. Pursue the normal pattern of life so that there's no opportunity, opportunity for the evil one to work dissension and disunity and havoc within the body of Christ. Part of the role of widows in the church who were supported by the church was to, to serve the church, to care for the sick and the needy, to disciple younger women. So if younger women were being supported... It just didn't allow opportunity for that. They hadn't lived enough years and demonstrated godliness in order to do that. Here's the key point, and I think a helpful application for us as well as we think about when we lend help and aid uh, to others. To receive and not to give leads to a host of other sins. So if we merely receive and don't give, there are other sins that will then follow. And Paul makes note of some of them here. Being idle, just being lazy, gossip, being a busybody. So it's so important that when we do help, and we do want to help, when there's legitimate need, we want to extend compassion, kindness, and care. But we also want to work and help folks to be able to serve and give back as they're able Parents, I think here again is another helpful point for us. As soon as our kids are able, we want them to help out, right? We want them to start doing chores around the house and or serving in the church. It's been kind of funny lately. Keenan and I loves to 
helped me at times when I print the worship guides. He just finds it fascinating to pull them off the copier. But, but what I'm trying to do at, at a young age is to teach him to serve and to give back. And that's so important so that we don't just become those who love to receive. I think another point here as far as an application to our young folks, to our students and young adults related to marriage is that once you sense someone that the Lord is clearly leading you to marry, go ahead and marry. Then there's, there's no opportunity, less opportunity for slander. Think of Paul's uh, words in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And we live in, in a day and a time where being tied down, being committed, especially for young people, it's not cool, right? It's not the most popular thing. By many in our culture, it's seen as weakness and restricting freedom. And yes, being bound, being committed, is just that. It means being bound and committed. But for the believer, there's such a sense of protection and freedom here. The only way, the only way we can experience true freedom is to abide in Christ. In verse 16, Paul further emphasizes the point that a child of a widow, a son or daughter, is to seek to care for his or her mom when able so that the church does not become unnecessarily burdened. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Part of the work as a preacher, part of what you have to do when you expose a passage, is you've got to first go to the original context and consider who the author was writing to, who was he writing to, what was going on. And then you've got to do the hard work of of crossing the bridge, if you will, and thinking, okay, how does this relate What is the contemporary application of the timeless truth of God's Word to our current setting? And we definitely live in a day where adults are living much longer. um, So we very well may face this uh, increasingly. But at the same time, we also have things like long-term care, disability insurance, Medicare and Medicaid. So... The number of true widows in our context or other church contexts around us may not be as many as those in the church at Ephesus. But regardless, I think the principle here is helpful as we think about those in our body who are in need. If family members are able to help, they should be allowed to do so. And the church is only to be burdened with those circumstances and situations that demonstrate true need. Now, this is certainly not a black and white process. Every situation, every circumstance is different. It takes prayer, discernment, talking to others. And again, we want to demonstrate compassion and care. Uh, But we, we do this with discernment and we seek wisdom. Paul then moves on in this chapter to this final section, or at least the way I'm grouping these final verses, 17 through 25 to give instructions for how a healthy church is to relate to her pastors and also for how the pastors are to relate amongst themselves and the body. Let's look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 
especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. A church composed of believers in Jesus Christ who are being transformed by the power of the gospel relates appropriately to her pastors and the pastors relate appropriately amongst themselves. Paul says here in verse 17 that the pastors who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now double here it doesn't denote necessarily double pay but instead both adequate remuneration and appropriate reverence and respect. There's a distinction between those who devote significant time to the laboring of preaching and teaching and those who do not. And Paul says those distinctions warrant distinctions in remuneration for the faithful work of preaching and teaching is extremely labor intensive. Paul here provides a challenge for individuals and churches that may struggle to remunerate their pastors. And I think we would all agree that there's extremes here, right? Lavagant, extravagant provision that's not appropriate for a minister of the gospel is just that. It's not appropriate. But at the same time, preaching and teaching is very labor intensive. It's kind of ironic this week. I think I saw Tim one day and I joked over that very fact. I said, this is hard work. And I was like, and that's one of the points of my passage. But it is. It's hard work. And I'm so thankful to, to be able to serve on a pastoral team with other men that labor over the Word, that study, that spend time in prayer and diligent study. It, it is. It's hard work. It's a different kind of work too. You don't always see your results. Like if you're going to go out and mow a yard or, or build a house. Laboring over the Word, it, it, it's different. But at the same time, it's very labor intensive. In verse 18, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So don't, don't muzzle the ox. Or in other words, allow him the opportunity to eat while he does the hard work of, of threshing out the grain. Now I have to be honest here and offer a confession. I, I did have to go to Wikipedia and Google in order to get a good grasp on what in fact 
threshing out the grain with the threshing board would be. I know Pastor Charlie often is able to refer to farming examples, his days on the farm, uh, for good examples in his sermons, and they're great, but I just don't have that luxury to rely on. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I would say then I'm a city slicker, but I was thinking, no, I'm not a city slicker. I, I'm a country boy who just spent his childhood days on the ball field. That, that would be me. So... But, hey, there's a lot, lot of examples you can draw from sports uh, that help in preaching as well, though. So I, I just have to take what I got. But anyway, back to my point. I'm digressing. A, a threshing board, there was two options the way the grain could be separated from the chaff. The oxen could just pound on it on this kind of stone floor that was divided and, and, and pull out the, the grain. Or they would pull a sled, a threshing board, which would think of like a big, heavy, wooden or metal grate divided in squares. And they would just pull that over sheaves of grain. Needless to say, it wasn't easy work. And so provision, being able to eat, was important. And so this, this reference here to Luke 7, a laborer deserves his wages, that, that's Paul's point. He deserves his wages so that he might eat, so that he will have adequate provision. Now every church context here is different. There's varying circumstances and conditions that make the applications of this principle vary. Yet the general principle remains, and that is this that those who work hard, spend significant time preparing to preach and to teach, they deserve remuneration so that they can do just that. Spend adequate time to faithfully preach and teach. Pastor Tim often refers to Jesus' words that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God to support this very point. The absolute necessity of faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. If we don't eat, we won't grow. It's impossible. And so this is very important for us as a church to consider as we seek to do what we're able to support those who spend significant time preaching and teaching. Let me also add a further word here beyond just remuneration, but this sense of the double honor that Paul's referring to. It has to do with encouragement and support. Pastoral work is hard work. It's very hard work. It's labor intensive. And it's very prone to discouragement. There's no bubble of protection around those who labor in pastoral ministry that keeps it from discouragement. We're all prone to be discouraged. Some maybe more than others. But in our brokenness, we at times experience discouragement. And the evil one loves to discourage pastors. That is his chief tactic, is to discourage those who labor over the Word. So I commend you, brothers and sisters, encourage your pastors. Pray for us. We need your prayers and encouragement as we seek to faithfully do this work. Paul also gives a directive in these verses related to how a charge needs to be brought against a pastor. Pastoral work is not only not prone, or it is prone to discouragement, but it's also prone to slander. This is another tactic of the evil one. If he can discredit 
one who is faithfully teaching and preaching the Word of God, he would love to do so. Therefore, it's so important that a charge against the pastor be corroborated. That is, it needs to have two or three witnesses. And in our newly adopted bylaws as a church that we just just voted in, we specifically spell out this process for how bringing a charge against the pastor needs to be done carefully, cautiously, and in a biblical manner if necessary. Pastors are not above discipline and correction. There's no pedestal that they stand on that, that can't be touched. We're all human. We're all prone to error. But, but Paul is saying here, the nature of the rebuke has to do with the nature of the sin. If it's public and if it's hurting the body as a whole, then it's got to be handled publicly. It needs to be dealt with publicly. But if private, it can be addressed privately. When there is need for a public rebuke of a pastor, it serves as an example to the others. Paul, Paul uses that language here so that the others may stand in fear. And there's also a sense here where the entire congregation uh, should, should heed this warning of, of biblical church discipline when necessary. In verse 21, Paul instructs Timothy to make sure as well to not show partiality when having to discipline a fellow pastor. As not only is the church watching, but Christ Jesus and the elect angels as well are watching over the faithfulness of under-shepherds in carrying out biblical church discipline. Verse 21, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And this, this is an important word to us as pastors, that we not show partiality. I'm thankful here. I'm thankful to be able to serve with a group of fellow pastors that I know, should my heart wander, will quickly and lovingly call me out. They'll, they'll rebuke me in a spirit of love. I'll hear them say, Chad, this is not who you are anymore. You've been bought at such a great price. Therefore, repent and believe. Paul also instructs Timothy to exercise caution and patience in verse 22 when appointing additional pastors to serve alongside of him. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Paul's warning here is to give time to examine, to test the character of potential pastors so that as best as humanly possible, it's able, you're able to discern their true character. I know employers often refer to a honeymoon period with new employees. And for married couples, we often refer to a honeymoon period where things are just great. But as with new employees and a new spouse, the newness quickly fades. Our true colors soon come out. And so Paul is saying here to young Timothy to, to do your best to discern a person's true character. Or otherwise you actually participate, you share in their sin. Consider this amazing reality. My life affects you. Your life affects me. How I live impacts you. And when I sin, it has an effect on you. Why? We're a family. 
Going back to the earlier point, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ and there's this mutual accountability that we share. Therefore, as leaders and as members, all of us, we've got to watch how we live. It's so important. Now, verse 23, this verse here may seem to just kind of be out of place. And at first glance, I'll, I'll have to agree. I read that and I was like, Paul, I'm not getting what you're going after here. But, but remember, earlier Paul has encouraged Timothy, be pure, keep yourself pure, unstained from the world. And we know that Paul had a deep love and affection for Timothy. So he says here in verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for, your, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He counsels Timothy, take care of your body. Only drinking water, especially water in that day and time, would not have been as sanitary as the water that you and I drink today. So Timothy was often prone to stomach trouble. And Paul just says, Timothy, don't neglect your health. Care for your body. Drink a little wine to aid your stomach. And then these final two verses, verses 24 and 25, provide for Timothy further encouragement related to the process of discipline and also of, of selecting pastors. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot remain hidden. Church discipline is never fun. It's never a fun process, but as we've talked about, as we've walked through our core values, it is biblical. It's important. It's something we have to do. And Paul is telling Timothy here, if, if a brother or sister is in sin, though it may not be obvious immediately, eventually it will come out. The truth will eventually come out. And if they're not, good works. Good works will ultimately outshine false accusations. And similarly, in, in thinking of selecting new pastors to serve the church, Patience and time allows an opportunity for the demonstration of good works. The demonstration of faithful shepherding. Paul encourages Timothy here in the hard work of pastoral ministry. Again, it is hard work. Discipline it is difficult, but it's necessary because the name of Christ and the beauty of the gospel are at stake. The church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, Timothy, Paul says, work hard so that the bride of Christ remains undefiled, so that she stands out as beautiful and glorious in a world that's broken and marred by sin. So here in chapter 5, Paul gives strong encouragement, but also weighty instructions for the church, how we're to relate as a church. And some final words, final applications for us, that is this. The way we live our lives as Christians matters. It matters how we live. And yet at the same time, it's the transforming grace of the gospel that empowers us to live in radical, new, different ways. We can't live the Christian life in our own power, in our own strength. Again, what I said at the very outset, those who are being changed by the power of the gospel relate to one another in ways that give glory to our great God by putting 
the glorious gospel on display. Now you may have heard this sermon and, and walked through these verses and say, okay, Chad, this is all fine and great, but what does this mean for me as I walk out of here today? I, I'm not a pastor. Uh, I, I'm not a widow and I don't aid in the care for widows. What, what's my takeaway? And I think it's just this. We're a family. We are a family. And so that means we have a responsibility to one another. To care for one another. To look out for one another. Just like you would your mom or your dad or your sister and brother in need. We're to care for one another. And I think maybe one of the greatest ways to assess this in our lives is to take these two things to to assess. Your money and your time. Just to reflect on and look at your money and your time. And, and how, where does that go in relation to your church family? Uh, would you be willing, if it meant providing for a need of a church family member, would you give up cable TV or, or eating out as much for a few months? Or that nice outfit that you really want? Or that time just for your yard to make it the immaculate yard that stands out in the neighborhood? Would you give that up if it meant serving your brother, your sister, your mother, your father in Christ? Let's pray for God's help as we seek to remain faithful as His family.